the EU is leading the dialogue, but also on the basis of what has done the US. And this is the same on anti-corruption. On anti-corruption, Europe has been behind the Americans for years, and we've been looking at what the Americans were doing. It's not the American, the companies that were sanctioned by the Americans, and I've mentioned the number of them for which I've worked. Welcome to the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of All Things Investigations. Today, I'm absolutely thrilled to have Nicholas Stolday with me. Nicholas, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me. Well, thank you, first of all, to you for having me today. It's a real pleasure to exchange with you, finally. Yes. Nicholas, all of our dialogue started based upon a blog post I saw in the FCPA blog that you wrote back in June entitled, EU Directive on Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence, Navigating the New Landscape of Corporate Accountability. I found it not only a very interesting blog post, but frankly, incredibly important. So I was wondering if we could explore that. But before we do, could you tell us a little bit about your professional background and your current role at Hughes Reed? Sure. So I've been working for about 20 years, including 15 years in compliance and internal investigations. Prior to that, I was a private equity lawyer in 2004. And during the 2008 financial crisis, there was no more private equity deals. And so I ended up by chance working on the Alcatel case, which for those familiar with the top 10 FCPA cases will be familiar with. Our Washington office was in need of a Paris office because of data protection reasons. And so I ended up working on that, liked it, decided to stay in that area and then moved in-house and worked for Technip, which you may also be familiar for being part of the top 10 FCPA cases as well. Started first working on the monitorship, first one in France at the time, then quickly working on the Brazilian investigation that led to the second DPA in the context of the Lavajato Car Wash investigations of Petrobras alongside Gabriel Fels. And since 2016, I've been back to private practice working at AJHR. And there I do, I would say, three types of work. First, internal investigations, of course but also operational assistance and compliance program and a lot of audits and compliance reviews. So for instance, our original JLS tweak, and we do that for anti-corruption and timely laundering, sanctions, export control, and also human rights and the duty of care, which is the topic of today's discussion. Nicholas, turning to the EU Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, could you first tell our American audience, what is a directive under the EU. So basically in the EU, we have 
two main types of legal instruments. We have directive and regulations. Regulations, you may have heard, for instance, of the GDPR, the EU GDPR on data protections. Regulations are issued by the EU and are directly applicable to citizens and entities in the EU. Directives are not directly applicable. They have to be converted into the laws of each member state. So here we are speaking about a directive that has been adopted by the EU parliament in June when I published this article. And once it will be formally adopted by the government at the EU council, then there will be two years for the member states to implement, transpose it into the laws of each member state to become effectively applicable to citizens and corporations directly. But the text adopted is already extremely detailed. So basically already prescribes each member state what they have to issue. And then what is the EU Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive? That is a directive that requires each member state in the EU to issue into their legislation an obligation for companies of a certain size to basically set up a compliance program on human rights. It will cover both human rights and environment, and it applies to EU companies that have more than 250 employees and generate more than 40 million euros companies in revenue. But it also applies to non-EU companies, American companies, for instance, so long as they have more than 150 million euros of revenue worldwide, including 40 million generated within the EU. So if you are a big American company with 150 million euros of revenue worldwide and 40 million revenue generated within the EU, then the law will be applicable to your operations. What, if any, French laws were the inspiration or perhaps even leading to the EU Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive? France has been at the forefront of compliance, I would say, since 2016, which is actually kind of the reason why I went back to the private practice back in 2016. In 2016, two legislations were issued in France, one that we've been talking a lot about, which is the Law Sapien 2, and another one is the duty of care legislation. So the legislation on the duty of care is directly influencing the EU directive, and it requires companies in France, large companies that have either more than 5,000 employees in France or more than 10,000 employees worldwide to basically set up a human rights compliance program within their operations, but also extending to their subsidiaries and to their supply chains of contractors worldwide. What's interesting in this one is that you have, you're forced to set up this compliance program, but the sanctions are essentially an injunction if you do not. And if you cause the damage, then you can also be held liable for damages to remediate them. And the second legislation is the Siphon 2 law, which I mentioned earlier. And that one is focused on anti-corruption, but it's also influencing the EU directive for one reason is that there is an authority that has been created to inspect that the compliance program is indeed implemented and enforced as mandated by the recommendation of that agency. So basically, 
under the duty of care legislation in France, you're supposed to have this human rights compliance program, but no authority to control it. So it's basically for NGOs to litigate against companies that fail to set up the program. But under the anti-corruption legislation, then you have this AFA, this French anti-corruption agency that regularly infects companies pretty in-depth and verify how the compliance program and anti-corruption is implemented worldwide. It's influencing the directive because the directive will require to set up a human rights compliance program, but will also require to have an authority that will inspect that the human rights compliance program will be implemented effectively. So it's kind of a merger of the two together at the European level. One of the areas that intrigued me was requirements extending beyond the company itself. Yeah. To me, this is absolutely transformative because it can really change the way companies do business. If you find that a fair assessment, could you explain what the requirements might be extending beyond a company itself and how you might counsel a company to help implement those requirements? Sure. And we're starting already because it's already kind of the case with the French legislation. So basically, you have to make the human rights assessment. And when I say human rights, it goes beyond human rights. We'll talk about the key areas, I guess, but it also encompasses environment. Basically, you have to make this assessment and the prevention of those risks within your operations, whether in France, in Europe, or outside the EU, Africa, Asia, wherever, but also within your sub under French too, it's the supply chain, but under the new directive, it will be the value chain. And so the value chain means the whole supply chain, not the first rank, but also all the layers below, but also on the downstream. So it's both upstream and downstream. A lot is being done through due diligence, of course, in the third parties you work with, also on auditing those third parties. There's been a lot of discussion about the relevance of audit clauses in the compliance community. With the new directive, it will be absolutely necessary, absolutely necessary to include audit rights and to exercise them and to require the same from your all suppliers in order to push down those obligations. One aspect that's also interesting is that it also has to take into account the downstream aspect, basically what your clients may cause. And one of the big questions is about the financial services, for instance. Will the financial services be included within the duty of care directive? Because if it does, then what about the loans that a bank may grant to, to a company to finance a project? Will they have to assess the environmental or human rights impact of the project of their clients when they are financing them? In which case, they may be reluctant to finance certain kind of project or certain kind of industries. And so that's been the subject of a lot of lobbying and discussions for a couple of years, if not more, within the European Union and it's continuing now. So yes, a lot will have to be done in that respect. And uh, one aspect will be through compliance audits, clauses. Nicholas, I see a lot of implications and indeed even application to the anti-bribery, anti-corruption space, in addition to human rights and environmental impact. But does the directive itself recognize the role of bribery and corruption in these issues? Or am I just reading something additionally beyond what is in the directive? This is not our anti-corruption bias. We indeed have a link between the directive and the, and the anti-corruption. 
If you look at the timing, for instance, you may note that the directive was adopted in June at the same time as the OECD guidelines on multinational enterprise was also adopted and updated with significant changes as well to require companies to also set up a human rights compliance program and an anti-corruption compliance program as well. It was done at the same time. And when the last version of the directives was adopted, there was an amendment that directly makes reference to the OECD guidelines. It explicitly states that when you make a human rights assessment, you have to take into account the corruption risk. So yes, there is a direct link within the directive between human rights compliance and anti-corruption compliance, which the compliance community in the world has been seeing for years now. One of the reasons I find this directive so powerful is what you just described, that it recognizes perhaps the direct or even indirect role of bribery and corruption, but it forces companies to look at, as you said, the entire value chain in kind of the FCPA or other anti-corruption compliance regimes, you typically do not require companies to look at the entire value chain. So with this directive, we can actually get a broader coverage in a wider variety of areas than just human rights and environmental impact. Would that be a fair assessment in your perspective? Yeah. A lot of compliance program at companies started with anti-corruption, but then sanctions came along. And so the judicial procedures, for instance, were adjusted to include sanctions compliance as then it was adjusted as well to take into account the EU GDPR on data protection. And a lot has been done on the compliance programs to adjust them on other topics. In fact, even without the directive, a number of companies have already adjusted their compliance program to include human rights. And it makes sense when you assess your operations, when you assess the operation of a supplier to take into account all those risks. So yes, everything is linked and it's a fair assessment to say so. Nicholas, are there any penalties for non-compliance with the directive? Yes, it's 5% of the worldwide net turnover of the company. It's interesting because since the French law on the duty of care was enacted in 2017 and the French law on Sapien 2 was enacted in 2016, a lot at French companies has been done to enhance compliance program. Frankly, a number of compliance program at companies have more now in line with the program that you will see within companies that have been under monitorship in the past. Not completely, but they tend to align with them. And that was done with no sanctions on the duty of care legislation and no sanction on the Sapien 2 law either. There are some sanctions that can be pronounced under the Sapien 2 law, but no company was effectively fined. And the fine is essentially 1 million euros for companies and 200,000 euros for people. So it's very limited compared to the 5% turnover worldwide. Considering what changes has brought the two French laws to French companies without sanctions, we can only imagine what it will bring to compliance practice with the new directives and 5% of turnover in place. How do you see the directive transforming or even influencing corporate governance in the EU? It will necessarily have a major impact considering the size of the fines, but also considering how the risks that are covered by the duty of care legislations are wide. 
indeed, if you, if you look at the duty of care directive, it covers areas such as child labor, slavery, labor exploitation, pollution, environmental degradation, biodiversity loss. So it's much more wide than anti-corruption or sanctions or export control or money laundering. So in order to put in place your compliance program, you're going to have to work on your governance and your processes, not only on a worldwide basis, but really throughout all the processes of the companies and all functions of the companies, even more than for anti-corruption. And you're all going to have to get into the scientific aspects of the operation of the companies, depending on the industry. So that will be extremely interesting for compliance professionals, I think. Nicholas, you touched upon this early on in the podcast, but I wanted to ask directly, how will the directive be put into law in each country in the EU? And then how will national authorities oversee compliance and enforcement of the law enacting the directive? Yes. So the directive was voted by the parliament in June of this year. At the end of the second semester, it will be fully adopted by the EU. Then Normally, there should be two years for each member state to convert the directive into the legislation. It should be fairly easy because the directive is extremely detailed and easy to convert into the law. Then the directive requires each member state to enforce their legislation. What we do not know yet is whether each member state will set up one agency to supervise it all, or whether, depending on the topic, there will be separate entities. And that has a significant impact because, as I mentioned, for the French section to law, for instance, they created the French Anti-Corruption Agency. That agency conducts inspections on the Anti-Corruption Compliance Program. They are very in-depth, very time-consuming. They last for months. And for instance, the moment they have clients which are under inspection by the French Anti-Corruption Agency, but they are also under inspection by another agency which is in charge of monitoring the activities of lobbying. So they have two inspections at the same time. Here with the directive on the duty of care, we're going to have plenty of risk. If we have, let's say, five, six agencies that are created for all the risk, you may have in each member states, potentially three, four, five, six, seven inspections in parallel within the same company, which may be very troublesome and time-consuming for a company to handle. And that's for one member state. We have a certain number of member states across the EU. So potentially you may have that risk across all member states. And so plenty of inspections all around the EU who will also inspect how it is implemented throughout the world. It may be a nightmare to implement. At the same time, you may also see conflicts between the guidelines, the recommendation that each authority will issue on how to implement those compliance program. For instance, in France, we already see conflicts between the French Anti-Corruption Agency and the Data Protection Agency on how we're supposed to handle personal data in the context of due diligence, compliance, anti-corruption due diligence. It's maybe extremely complicated for companies to address all the inspections around the European Union and across all the risk that they're going to have to monitor if they don't coordinate themselves. And the European Union, its level will, of course, 
verify how each EU member state will implement the law. So we shouldn't expect one member state to be reluctant into enforcing the legislation. The EU will make sure that every member state each issue and then enforce the legislation in each country. Recognizing that there may be guidance from individual country members of the EU, yeah. what would you advise companies to do literally starting now? Are there some steps that you feel a company could take which would be broad enough or general enough to really fulfill the obligations that any country puts in place? Or should companies really wait till their home countries implement no. no. directive? They should not. And in fact, ahead of the issuance of the French law and the duty of care, French companies had already started anticipating it. And I think non-French companies should already do that, whether they are in Europe or outside Europe. The first thing I would do would be to reach out to my peers in France, whether within companies or legal experts, because there is no reason to reinvent the wheel. French companies and French compliance community has been working on it for six years already. So there is a lot of lessons to be learned from the French on that aspect. And that would be the first step that I would do, especially since there is the directive on corporate sustainability, but there is also another directive in the European Union that was issued also some time ago, which is the Directive on Corporate Sustainability Reporting, the CSRD. And that one, it's already in the processes of being converted into the laws of each member state. And in fact, France should enact it within this week or next week. And that directive doesn't require directly companies to set up a human rights compliance program, but it requires companies to issue a number of information related to human rights and sustainability. And of course, so long as you publish information about what you do, you are accountable for them. And therefore, you will have to make sure that you have a program to support what you state in your publication. And that directive is also applicable to non-French companies and non-EU companies, so long as they have more than 150 million euros of revenue within the European Union. That's another reason why I think American companies should be interested in understanding what the French have to say on that aspect, because not only we can give them tips about how we've been handling the duty of care for the past six years in France and worldwide for French companies, but also we're already transposing the CSRD directive. And if they have more than 150 million revenue within the EU, the French version of it is about to come out. And so they may be interested in understanding what they're going to have to publish in that respect. Nicholas, I'd like to end our podcast by reading to you the last line from your blog post on the FCPA blog. And I read, quote, as the EU progresses on this path, it has the potential to set a global example for corporate sustainability and accountability for years to come, end quote. It struck me that that was no small amount of pride that you felt in writing that sentence. But I wanted to ask, from your perspective in being in generally anti-corruption and anti-bribery work for literally 20 years and seeing the evolution of compliance in France and the EU, you see the EU really leading in many ways in this 
fight against the international scourge of bribery and corruption. And I know this directive focuses on human rights and environmental, but so I'm an ABC lawyer for a long time, so I see everything through the lens of bribery and corruption. But it just struck me, particularly after our listening to you on this podcast, that the EU is literally on the cutting edge of many strategies now. How do you feel as a practitioner in the EU? Do you really have that sense of pride that I saw in that last line? And do you really see the EU at least leading the dialogue now? The EU is leading the dialogue, but also on the basis of what I've done the U.S. And this is the same on anti-corruption. On anti-corruption, Europe has been behind the Americans for years, and we've been looking at what the Americans were doing. It's not the Americans, the companies that were sanctioned by the Americans, and I've mentioned the number of them for which I've worked. But because of some geopolitical aspects, especially in France, the French have been willing to set up their own legislation and their own reference on compliance in the past six to 10 years now. I have to admit that for the anti-corruption world, for instance, the work that has done the French anti-corruption agency is pretty good and pretty unique in the world in how they managed to incite companies to enhance significantly the anti-corruption compliance program in a way that to a certain extent now goes beyond what a lot of American companies would do. That being said, a lot of companies in America have also developed their compliance program in ways that are more in-depth than what the French would do. So to a certain extent, we go further. To another extent, you go further and Fortunately, we are still linked in how we work in the business field, and we have to take both into account. So there is a certain pride indeed, because there is a real expertise in France now on compliance, but it's mixed between the French and the American compliance community, I would say. So it's really working together that we've managed to improve compliance. And in fact, at GGHR, I'm French, but it's an American firm and I work all the time with American colleagues. This is really by working together that we've been significantly improving how we do compliance in France in the last 15 years. Nicholas, unfortunately, now we are at the end of our time for this episode. But before we leave, I wanted to ask you if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself or your work at Hughes, Hubbard & Reed, what might be the best place for them to go? The easiest way is just to put my name on LinkedIn and go through my profile. You'll see a number of articles I published in English on the directive on the duty of care legislation in France or Sapintulo, and it will help you to understand what the European authorities or French authorities are expected and what will be expected from companies that will be subject to the EU directive. Nicholas, I'm glad we were finally able to connect, and I hope we can continue this conversation into 2024. Really, great pleasure.